Welcome to The Stockout. The Stockout is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to consumer packaged goods or CPG companies and their supply chains. I'm Mike Bowden Distel. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves. Uh, in addition to covering Intermodal, also follow the CPG industry and a uh, lot to talk about today. There were a lot of companies reporting earnings uh, last week, but I'm not going to dwell too long on that because plenty of other um, you know shows, freight waves, and you know analysts cover those and and, and what have you. But uh, also going to focus on you know what's happening in the freight transportation uh, industry. I'll touch on sort of the three major uh, areas that we cover here at Freight Waves with our data. Those are being uh, ocean, rail, and uh, truckload. Um, you know, but first, I uh, just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, which is. RJW uh, Logistics Group, which was uh, kind enough to sponsor uh, the Stockout show and newsletter for the month of August. Hope to have uh, RJW on a Stockout show um, here in the coming weeks. Uh, please go to uh, www.rjwgroup.com. So that's easy one, rjwgroup.com. Uh, logistics experts do a lot with uh, CPG and retailers and find out how they can uh, help you. Uh, so with that... Um, I'll start with uh, sort of what's happening in the world of CPGs in the last couple of uh, you know weeks, really in the last in the last week. You know, a ton of companies reported earnings, and I think sort of the big theme is that there's more evidence of consumers changing their behavior in response to inflation, in response to just not feeling as good about uh, their financial uh, you know situation um, you know overall. And and you know, I really think a lot of you know, companies saw this coming and sort of we get to this question of is the elasticity that, that consumers, um, you know, have for CPG you know, companies, is it going to be sort of in line with what it was historically? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Um, but, but clearly, I mean, I think some of the, the um, results posted by some of the CPG companies are at least showing that CPG companies are not immune to consumers changing their behavior. They're less sensitive than, you know, if you look at some of these companies like Best Buy reported last week and, you know, consumers don't have to buy any of those electronics, but, you know, CPG sort of essential items, um, sort, sort of areas are also some, some alternatives. But when you sort of look at what happened last week, Procter & Gamble um, re- reported uh, expects slowing sales uh, sort of in their quarter. They had organic sales growth of 7% on 8% pricing and organic volume decline of 1%. Um, you know, there you're looking at the Procter & Gamble stock chart for the past 12 months and kind of back to where we were a, a year ago. And uh, the CPG companies in general have been strong performers this year and have held up a lot better than other um, you know, stocks. There's been sort of this shift towards the quality uh, names that, that are less volatile. And uh, Procter & Gamble has been one of the, the, the beneficiaries of that. Their shares were down about 6% after they reported Last week, and I think what was um, you know, concerning to some of the street is, is they said that the shift to private label has been small, quote small but noticeable. Um, you know, that's a trend I think that uh, a lot of CPG companies are seeing. Uh, there, there's some, you know, evidence from IRI, a company that follows uh, CPG companies very closely, that the um, you know store brands, those private label brands. Now we have about 21.6% market share, which is actually higher than 2019 levels, sort of this reversal of what happened during 2020 when these big national brands took share from the you know, private label brands. You know, maybe that's because their supply chains were in better shape. There was more product on shelves, maybe because consumers had 
more disposable income. Maybe it's just because those those national brands gave consumers comfort um, in a time of uncertainty. But for whatever reason, uh, the national CPG brands gained share during the during the pandemic. They seem to be giving a lot of that back, if not all of it back. Um, and getting back to to, to, to Procter and Gamble, there sort of the elasticity that they're seeing at least so far. Sales growth about seven percent, eight percent. That's an eight percent pricing, one percent volume decline. That's actually pretty solid. If companies able to take up their prices eight percent, only uh, see volume decline one percent. And you can sort of draw a contrast to what they just saw in that last quarter with what they saw for the full year, which was prices rose four percent and volume rose two percent. And that's kind of what we're seeing across the CPG industry is. Because consumers are expecting price increases, if these companies raise their prices four, five, six percent, they're generally able to maintain volume growth if they take their prices up to sort of fully uh, reflect what's happening on their cost side, which might be seven, eight, nine, ten percent, maybe more than that. That's when you're starting to see, um, you know, volume take a, a, a hit. That's that's pretty noticeable. Um, Procter and Gamble said they expect organic sales of three to five percent in the upcoming year. Last year was five percent. And they said that the uh, rising prices are slowing CPG industry growth by about one percentage point. I think if anything, that's maybe being too conservative. And it does seem like um, the consumer is just sort of starting to to sort of fully um, you know pull back and, and and there's maybe you know other shoes to to to, to drop uh, you know there. Uh, Procter & Gamble also, um, interesting, they said that core earnings grew about 3% despite the headwinds from commodities, freight, and foreign exchange. Uh, core gross margin declined 370 basis points uh, year over year. That's a trend that we're seeing sort of across the CPG, CPG space. I think you sort of you know go back about a year and a half ago, uh, early 2021. I don't think most of the CPG companies were expecting you know, their, their costs to rise as much as they have and as for as long as they have. And so a lot of those companies, um, you know, were, were caught with rising costs and they couldn't fully pass those, those, those costs on with higher price increases. So you did see lots of CPG companies really across the board see margin deterioration of several hundred basis points. You know, Procter & Campbell's just one of those uh, companies um, last quarter, 370 basis point um, you know, margin decline. So that's something that lots of companies are, are, are dealing with and it's not just Rising uh, commodities and and ingredients is also you know labor, uh, contract manufacturing. A lot of these companies have had to go you know outsource a lot of their manufacturing to third parties, um, which is very expensive. Cuts into the margin. I think um, as volumes decline a little bit, that's one of the the, the silver lining for CPG companies. Is they can bring more of that manufacturing in house. Should actually help um, you know mitigate some of the margin uh, you know pressure. So. That's a little bit of what we're seeing um, from, from, from Procter & Gamble. Uh, their big competitor, Unilever, also reported uh, last week. Um, and something they added that didn't hear from, from Procter & Gamble is they said U.S. consumers are shopping more in physical stores. They're shopping less online. That's something that we've seen from some of the online retailers saying that uh, that pandemic behavior of the huge shift to e-commerce is starting to reverse itself at least a little bit. Um, some of that is just fewer, you know, impulse purchases. Uh, you know, some of that is just, um, you know, consumers going to more of the big box retailers, sort of these big stock up, you know, trips. Um, you know, Lover also said there'd be a negative impact on volume with pricing above what they have is a, a range of four and a half percent to six and a half percent. So not a surprise that consumers are, you know, cutting back there. And they've cited a bunch of 
you know, different input costs that are, are causing them, you know, pain, you know, crude oil, um, of, of course, also uh, crude palm oil and palm kernel, you know, th- that's the input that comes from, you know, largely Indonesia and Malaysia that goes into a wide range of consumer products, a lot of, um, you know, personal care products even goes into, into ice cream. You know, that's, that's something that's been in, in, in short supply and has been exacerbated like so many commodities have by the war in Ukraine because that, um, you know, palm oil is competitive with, uh, you know, sunflower uh, oil that comes from Ukraine. Uh, Unilever also, you know, cited, you know, aluminum uh, having a, a pretty significant, you know, impact. And so their gross margins declined 180 basis points, 8.6% cost increase, more than offset a 6.5% increase in price. And so that's kind of why this has been a difficult um, uh, time for CPG companies. It's just the, the, the cost rising faster than their, their, their prices. I think going forward, the big question is, um, you know, are they going to have additional rounds of pricing? And I think Procter & Gamble sort of partially, partially um, you know, answered that in uh, their earnings report. They said, you know, expect another round of, let's say, 4 to 5% uh, price increases um, in, in the coming uh, months. And it also gets to the question of, are retailers going to be accepting of these prices or with commodity prices, you know, off of their highs, if those, um, you know, continue lower, are the retailers going to say, you know, no more, you know, price increases? Um, I think the relationship between CPG and retailers have gotten to be a little bit more contentious because the CPG companies have come to them so many different times asking for price increases on top of price increases and um, the, the retailers, you know, doing more with the, the private label brands. So it does look like um, companies like Treehouse, which is a big company that makes, a lot of the private label um, you know, brands, uh, you know, for companies like Trader Joe's, you know, Kroger, et cetera, they're they're in a pretty good uh, position, um, you know, here going forward. I'll move on to topic number two, and uh, this I'm sort of reiterating and taking from what uh, you know, Zach Strickland's chart of the week. Zach Strickland, if you don't follow him, he's our, the Sultan of Sonar, knows um, you know the, the sonar data at FreightWaves inside and out, and he wrote a, a good article. Over the weekend, uh, you know, how far will contract freight rates decline? He was, you know, speaking specifically about uh, truckload rates, and we have a, a chart on that. And so, in this chart, the blue are contract rates, and so most of the big CPG companies—that's the market that they play in—or are, are is a contract freight market. Um, you know, generally one-year contracts, and in uh, green are spot rates. And these are on a comparable basis where we're excluding uh, fuel and in green, we're sort of assuming that the, the base level fuel costs about $1.20 a gallon. And, and, and what you see there is really uh, ever since the beginning of June, the spot rate, June of, of 2020, so about two years, the, the spot rates for, for um, driving and truckload have been higher than the, the contract rates um, that ended in February of, of, of this year. So call it a year and three quarters of spot rates of, above contract rates. And um, you know, the spot rates have, have fallen uh, you know, very significantly. And now they're, they're about uh, $0.75 cents, um, you know, per mile below where contract uh, freight rates are. And that spread is not sustainable and it is about three times um, you know wider than in 2019 which was thought of as being a weak you know freight market there were lots of uh, truckload bankruptcies in, in in 2019 and uh, you know the the natural conclusion is to see we would expect to see the contract rates uh, start to decline um, for, for for freight and 
that's good news for, for CPGs. Um, I haven't heard any CPGs come right out and say, well, this is a headwind. We have lower freight costs. They've all said kind of the opposite. They've said you know, freight is still a headwind because those contract rates are higher than the contract rates they were paying a year ago. Most of the CPGs are moving, um, you know, sufficient volume that they play in the contract market and, and sort of, you know, more stable volumes of contract is a better option for them. But would not surprise me at all if uh, the um, you know CPG companies started to get a more aggressive, you know, with with the contracts. Um, you know, Zach predicts the three to five percent decline in freight rates is uh, kind of a conservative estimate in the coming months. It could be steeper than that when you look at how much um, spot rates are down from their high. Let's say a few months ago, they're down about twenty seven percent, and that is since the beginning of March. Meanwhile, contract rates down about 2%. So it does seem like contract rates have a long way to fall. Um, you know, that seems to uh, at least eventually pay into CPG companies' you know, favor, uh, combined with maybe um, you know, commodity costs, which are hopefully off of their highs. You know, maybe the labor market gets a little bit weaker. So you, you sort of look at um, you know, what's happened with CPGs with their uh, declining margins over the last year and a half, and you sort of say, well, maybe going forward, that's as as um, thin as those margins are going to be. Can we get to a point where the, the margins start to start to rise? I think that's sort of a logical um, you know outlook um, to at least be you know bullish on CPG's margins. And um, you know the other big question, like I talked about earlier, you know is the, the elasticity going to continue to to stay low, at least lower than it has been historically, which the the CPG companies have seen so far. So I'll move on from truckload to rail, area that I follow uh, closely. And uh, CP uh, Canadian Pacific added some detail last week of its uh, merger with uh, Kansas City Southern. Sort of where we are there is uh, Canadian Pacific is expecting approval from Surface Transportation Board, the organization um, of the U.S. government that economically regulates the U.S. Railroad, expecting that approval in early 2023. So it does seem like it's a, a, a slow Process. There is going to be a three-day hearing, um, you know, on the merger in September, where those that are opposed can take their grievances to the Surface Transportation Board and, and, and say how awful they think the the merger is 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 going to be. Uh, Canadian Pacific, for 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 its case, um, it, it cited that there's been a lot of uh, shippers that are um, you know on board with the the, the merger, and I thought the the comments uh, you know last week were were interesting, where CPG, C, CP gave some additional detail on, on, on what they've been doing with their operations. And they said specifically that they've, they've tested six or seven trains from Lazaro Cardenas, um, which is on the west coast of Mexico, Port City on the west coast of Mexico, to Chicago with seven-day transits that's competitive with uh, intermodal service from you know, the ports of LA Long Beach to Chicago, which is currently the by far the densest um, you know, intermo intermo intermodal corridor in the United States. And so that could potentially be, um, you know, a service that takes share from the port of LA Long Beach. Those ports seem to do everything they can to uh, price themselves out of the market with very high uh, labor costs uh, with ILWU. And um, they're some of the most inefficient ports um, in the world with less uh, automation. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the, the unions, which, which won't allow more, uh, you know, automation. So, that's something investors are um, you know, excited about. They have been for a long time. You know, CP and Kansas City Southern, you know, likely being under one uh, corporate umbrella, they can have investments on both sides of Kansas City. 
seems to be a, a boon for, um, for, for, for shippers, uh, you know, there. Uh, you know, another thing they talked about is on the domestic intermodal side, more service out of uh, Chicago to Laredo, talking about a 90-hour transit time from Chicago to Laredo. Um, you know, I had been thinking about that more maybe from Chicago to, to Dallas. I mean, sort of these north-south corridors for rail. Um, intermodal is really punching below its weight class, uh, but uh, it seems like that's a logical way to get um, uh, auto parts from uh, the auto part manufacturers that might be located uh, near Chicago or in Detroit and get those across border to the Mexican assembly plants. Uh, the rails then will move the finished vehicles back you know, north across the border for U.S. consumption. Um, so that seems like a big opportunity in extending the Canadian Pacific's reach. They also talked some about grain and bulk commodities. And uh, CP was talking about moving grain from Manitoba to as far south as Mexico City, uh, which opens up the possibility for farmers in Canada to move their grain into more locations. I'd say one of the, the, the pushbacks uh, you know, for the uh, Canadian Pacific Kansas City Southern merger has been from U.S. farmers that are concerned that they will lose share to Canadian growers if they can more easily get their uh, crops uh, from Canada to consumption centers in the U.S. or to, you know, all the way to Mexico. And Kansas City Southern, um, you know, actually moves more across the border south uh, from the U.S. to Mexico than vice versa because they do, they have such a large grain franchise, they move a lot of grain, uh, you know, south. Um, so that was interesting. Um, they also said that it opens up more possibilities potentially uh, for potash. Potash is a, you know, big fertilizer commodity that's largely moved from Canada uh, to the export markets. Uh, through the port of Vancouver, um, but maybe now more of that will move to agriculture regions uh, in you know the U.S. You know potentially you know Mexico or out other ports. Uh, so a, a lot that could could change there, and I think all this sort of makes the case that uh, this is in the the best interest of the public, which is one of the hurdles that uh, CP has to clear in order to get this approved, and that it actually enhances. Uh, railway uh, competition rather than uh, detracts from railway competition, which is the main uh, thing that the Service Transportation Board is going to be looking at. If uh, there are mitigation measures, which there likely will be, um, you know, it's probably going to be what the Burlington Northern Santa Fe has has requested, which is to make sure that there's nothing anti-competitive about uh, Kansas City Southern's unique access to the Laredo, um, you know, gateway uh, right near uh, you know, the border of U.S. And, and, and Mexico. I think the concern would be that uh, with CP and Kansas City Southern under, under the same corporate umbrella, that they would give preferential treatment to uh, freight that started on the CP and goes to Laredo uh, to Mexico rather than the, that that started on, let's say, Union Pacific or Burlington Northern that, that makes that same trip. So that's um, you know, one thing to, to consider, um, you know, with that. I'll move on to the next topic, uh, which is on the container side. And uh, the overall container ship backlog hits a new record. This was uh, from an article written the other day by Greg Miller, who follows the maritime um, industry extremely uh, closely. Uh, so basically, there's been a shift in the backlog of container ships waiting. And, you know, you recall all the headlines of the container ships waiting off the co- uh, coast of um, you know, LA and Long Beach, you know, 100 and something uh, ships at one point, I think 109 in January, we're waiting in the San Pedro Bay, that's down to 26. 
but all is not good on the water because uh, there's been an increase in the ships waiting, uh, you know, on the other ports on the Gulf Coast and the the East Coast. And now there's actually a, a 153 total ships uh, stuck in uh, waiting off of the various ports in North America. That's up 66% from June, um, you know, in the past uh, several weeks. Some of the ones that are most um, you know, impacted there is uh, Savannah, Georgia, about 43 are waiting, uh, Houston, uh, you know, about 24. And that seems to reflect um, the shippers' desire to avoid the ports of a port of LA, you know, that could be related to the the labor, you know, issues. The um, longshoremen working without a contract. That contract, um, you know, was supposed to, you know, roll over, you know, July first. They're still in negotiations. There's always the potential that, um, you know, even if there's not a work stoppage, that those uh, uh, facilities will will operate less efficiently. Uh, so there was a lot of, of movement to other ports, um, you know, sort of in, in, in anticipation of that. There's also been a tremendous amount of rail congestion at the the L, um, yeah, ports of LA and Long Beach, with um, you know a very large portion of the containers sitting for longer than nine days before they depart on a railroad. And sort of the, the rail congestion has been kind of the main you know constraint there, with the truckload uh, market uh, easing up um, you know, at the port of uh, LA. Um, and, and all that's, uh, you know, taken place despite the fact that there's been a cooling in uh, overall ocean uh, demand, have a chart on the ocean uh, TEU, you know, volume index. And so um, in blue is ocean TEU volume index. Uh, this is from our, our maritime product uh, from China to the U.S. You've seen that, you know, drop off quite a bit. And, you know, moving right along with it has been uh, the Freitos Baltic uh, daily index, uh, in green, that's from China to the uh, U.S. West Coast. And so, so, so uh, volume is in blue in this chart. Rates um, in, in green, you've seen both of those, you know, come way down, which is uh, because there's been a slowing in overall, um, you know, demand, you know, with the inventory, you know, re, re, um, retailers' inventories, you know, being at, at, a, at a very high level for a lot of uh, general merchandise and, you know, that's one thing that's actually contributed to um, the rail congestion because you recall last year there were um, shortages of international shipping containers with demand coming off. There's no longer a shortage of those international shipping containers. So the container ship lines much more willing to send those containers, those ocean going containers, primarily 40 foot containers intact into the interior of the United States. That's created a lot more, um, you know, rail congestion at locations like Chicago, so um, it's kind of we're we're swapping one uh, you know problem uh, for another, um, but I do think that's uh, that chart I just showed sort of reflects you know decline in sort of global um, you know consumption and uh, the fact that the retail uh, inventories are bloated, that warehouse um, you know levels are at a very high level, and you know really would expect a muted uh, peak season for. Um, you know, ocean imports. I think maybe this is our peak season once we get through back to school. Um, you know, it seems like there's going to be a lot um, already, you know, in inventory that that maybe doesn't need to that don't need, really need to have that big fall surge that you typically see. You know, you typically would see a big uh, surge in uh, rail intermodal volume in October, followed by a uh, truckload in uh, you know November into December. 
but it does seem like that's cooling off some. Uh, before I uh, you know leave you today, I'll uh, just give a couple of, of macro uh, you know updates. Um, you know, just, just listening to our chief economist at FreightWaves, Anthony Smith, talking about the, the macro uh, you know side, GDP down 0.9% in the second quarter. I guess according to him, we're technically are in a recession. Real disposable income declined uh, 0.3%. He sees a rising trend in jobless claims, savings rate at the lowest level in 13. Uh, years and um, you know saw that fewer people are paying their AT and T bills, and that's kind of an interesting um, you know economic uh, indicator uh, for those that kind of live paycheck to paycheck. That's that's something that you wouldn't want to you know get rid of if you're getting your cell phone and or internet from you know AT and T um, like you would here in uh, Dallas. So. Uh, not a lot uh, that's positive on the um, you know macro side. Maybe with the exception of the job market is still fairly tight. I mean, I do think that tends to be a lagging indicator. Um, but most of the forward-looking indicators does seem like the consumer is, is getting uh, squeezed and uh, likely to see more of that uh, fallout here in uh, the coming uh, you know weeks. So um, with that, that's really what I wanted to go over today. Uh, feel free to sign up for. Uh, my newsletter at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the stockout. You can get that pretty easily by going to freightwaves.com up to newsletters. And then first one listed there is uh, the stockout. We focus on CPG. Also, we'll talk about uh, you know anything I, I see that's interesting in the freight markets and freight uh, waves, uh, sonar, uh, data, um, et cetera. Lots of other good ones there, including uh, point of sale for retail and uh, um, a transmission on the automotive side. So with that, hope everyone has a great uh, Monday.